1 Corinthians, second chapter. pick up here at what is called the second session of this chapter. I'm glad I didn't read my writing because I've got up here 1 Corinthians 1st chapter and I know good and well. <laughs> Sometimes I can't even write what I think. But uh, I've entitled this worldly wisdom versus godly wisdom. And got to know a little bit of the background of this situation. Paul, as we've talked about, was a highly educated man. He was educated in both Judaism and Greek. He understood the Greek poets and knew all of that, and he had been in Athens right before this. And there he contended with Athenian scholars on their level, which he could do. But now he's in Corinth. And Corinth at this time was basically the crossroads of the world. There was a time when Helena, Arkansas, was a kind of a crossroads. Steamboats. Steamboats came here. How many of you remember Tapping Coal Company? When I came here, you could still buy coal down on Ohio Street from Tapping Coal Company just for your little coal-burning fireplaces and stuff like that. But they used to service the steamboats, the coal-powered steamboats on the river. Then you've got uh, the Pillow family, the Pillow Thompson house. There's a place out on here on the river. It's called Point Pillow. And then you got the is it Laconia Circle down at down past Snow Lake. You know, there's a levee down there that is built around the farms, you know, to, to protect the farms down there. And uh, there used to, uh, when I first came here, there was a section of the Helena World called Connell's Point News. They had a reporter from Connell's Point, you know, that's where Harold Chris was from, and uh, Miss Lily and a lot of the others down there. There was a kind of a closed society, you might say, down at Connell's Point. Well, there also was uh, news that you go back in the newspapers and you check, and you'll find out that the Rydell family, Mr. and Mrs. Rydell, just returned from Paris where they were shopping for clothes and furniture 
and they came in on the Sultana, and they're having a big soiree at their plantation home down in, down in the country here, and having other people come in and visit. That was the kind of society that Helena had back in those days, you know. There, every, every plantation down through here had its own riverboat landing. And, and they went shopping like in Paris or something when the crops were all in, you know. Go down steamboat to New Orleans, get on a, a steamship, go across and, and have a good old time. Well, this was a kind of a area like that. You had people of that quality, you might say, and they were educated. They sent their kids to be educated in places like that. And then you had the river rats. Huh? <laughs> That's what you were. <laughs> and then they had... You had the uh, laborers. You had the logging industry, which the house uh, came down here. I've got a book of images of Phillips County, and they cut logs down there that only one of them would fill up a, 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 a train car. You know, they had those donkey lines, they called, that went down through there. One log, guy standing up beside it, and he's not as tall as the log is around, you know. And so, stop and think. If you were going to have a revival in Helena, what kind of preacher would you have to have? He would have to have an ability to communicate with whomever. You've heard the term holy roller? Have you ever seen it? You have? Where did you see it? Elaine? Under a tent, right? Under a tent. Benches was planks set up on yeah, chunks of wood, you know, like cut wood. Yeah. And people get all excited. They always loaded the place down with sawdust. And you get in there. I saw it at Greasy Corner. You know where Greasy Corner is? Yeah. yeah. Up. Go up uh, out of, when you go out of Hughes, just turn left on 149 up there, and you'll go up to a place called Greasy Corner. I grew up in the honky tonks of Greasy Corner, the beer joints. And so, but they used to have those little tent revivals out there. And I have seen those people get down and roll in that ecstatic experience they'd have, you know, when they got the Holy Ghost, you know, and roll around in that, in that sawdust. So you have to be able as a preacher, you have to be able to communicate with the people that you're talking to. 
you might have one preacher preaching in the Episcopal or Presbyterian church back in those days, and they would be preaching to, if the people even came this far to church, most of the time those people lived in their own little enclave down there, horses and buggies, and they might not even stop at Helena. They might wave at Helena as they went by in their steamboat headed for New Orleans. But see, Paul had this ability to communicate. And so he had been in Athens communicating. Now he's in Corinth. And what's Corinth like? Take Helena as it was then. You had every type, every shape, every nationality, every business interest. All these people were in Corinth. And the Corinthian church was a conglomerate of these. As he had said in the first chapter, not many of you were of noble birth. He's in with the common working class now. And he knows how to communicate with them. And he says, what we talked about last week, he says, my language and my message were not set forth in persuasive words of wisdom, but they were in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and power. And so... That's what, he, that's what his basis was. He says, so that your faith might rest in the wisdom, not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What he says is this. I didn't want you to be swayed by the wisdom of men, by fine rhetoric and great eloquence, which the Greeks loved. But the people in Corinth, the common people, weren't so swayed by this. And he said, I don't want you to get swayed by this. He said, I want you to recognize when you see it, the power of God. Now, he had talked about the foolishness of preaching, but now he says something. Sixth verse says, yet when we are among the full grown we do impart a higher wisdom. Now yours, if you say King James, it might say those who are perfect. Scripture uses the word perfect that means completed or mature. It doesn't mean perfect like we speak of a perfect diamond. Or a perfect pearl. We are speaking of maturity. I told you I didn't like the word age, did I? Or old. It's tough getting mature. But it's work to become mature. I told Steve this morning, he's sitting there reading the Bible. I said, you shouldn't read that book too much. It'll make you narrow-minded. 
But he said, but every time you read it, it's different. I said, yeah, that it is. I had a meeting the other day, last Monday, at the patio, and we met with Fulton, Aminette, and it was all set up by Dustin down at Lambrook. And it comes to find out that Dustin and I had preached on the same passage of Scripture, but when we became, when I, we started comparing notes, we was two entirely different sermons. Which is the magic, if you want to call it of that, the magic of Scripture. I learned a long time ago that I should keep a notebook in my pocket because every once in a while you start reading something and it comes out in bold print. You've had the experience. It looks like all of a sudden, what? And it just seems to jump off the page at you. And you say, boy, I'm not going to forget that. The next day you go back and read the same scripture and it won't jump off at you again. The Holy Spirit has this ability to make it plain to you right then, but if you don't make a note about it and do something, you know, and write it down, and then you lose it. He said, you didn't use it, so therefore you lose it. And so this is the way that Scripture is many times. That's the reason that Adrian Rogers could preach and preach and preach and preach and preach for how many years? And like the one before him, Dr. R.G. Lee, his payday someday. I've got that, sir. No, I don't. I gave it to Dustin. <laughs> I gave him my library. I don't have a library anymore. I wanted somebody younger to have it, and so I gave it to him. But that sermon, Payday Sunday, there's a verse of scripture that says, the harvest is past, and summer is gone, and we are not saved. That triggered a great revival one time as a pastor was bidding his congregation farewell. And that's what he said when he said it. Harvest is past, summer is gone, and we're not saved. And it cut them to the heart, and it started a revival. You see, different things. When I also had a copy of that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. If you ever get a chance to read that, do so, because that's what the pastor did. But it is from him that you have your life in Christ Jesus, whom good, whom God made our wisdom from God, da-da-da-da-da. And he read it almost in a monotone. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit was so strong there that they were holding on to the back of the pews and crying out to God. 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. He likens it to be suspended by a spider web above a pit of flame. That just like that, you can be gone. Just like Brother Terry. Just like that. And he was gone. Prepared. Sermon prepared. But never got to preach it. And so, this is kind of the situation that we're looking at here. And Paul says that when you're among the perfect or mature, it says then we impart a higher wisdom. See, he's not say, he didn't say that we were preaching foolishness. He said what you consider foolishness is a higher wisdom. And it says, and what this is, in the application it says, the knowledge of the divine plan previously hidden. But it is indeed not a wisdom of the present age or of this world, nor of the leaders and rulers of this age who are being brought to nothing and are doomed to pass away. Now what this kind of refers to uh, the present age or the world to come, the Jews called this world the way it is right now. But the world to come will come when Messiah comes. Amen. See, they didn't, they didn't realize that Messiah came, but he's coming again. But so that's the world, we might look at that, the world, and then the world to come. And so Paul is saying, that, look here, I want to tell you about something, a wisdom that you've never heard of. You've heard of the wisdom of the Greeks. You've heard of the wisdom of, the, uh, of this uh, uh, esoteric thing, uh, for instance, uh, like Freemasonry. Freemasonry, uh, you have to ask. They're not allowed to ask you. You have to ask to be uh, to be a Mason. But then, and the Rosicrucians, you know, uh, the Illuminati, all of these different organizations like this, uh, the... Uh, Bushes were members of uh, of an organization like that, uh, uh, some sort of secret society. Uh, George and his daddy were, and then you have uh, the secrets of the universe are only revealed to those who are initiated, who are worthy to 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 receive it, and so uh, that's the reason that no one no woman can be made a mason. It's uh, it's forbidden, you know. And so that's a type of, quote, wisdom. And we buried one about a year ago that was a real strong in this, and that's Johnny Savage. Some of you might have known Johnny and everything. And Johnny was a real strong in, in mastery. 
his wife said she couldn't get him to go to church, but that was. But he was he didn't miss a meeting on on masonry. And but Paul says, look, that's junk. See, I was the thirty second degree mason. There's only one degree higher than that, and you have to go to Washington, D.C. and spend about $1,500 to get it. Gene Ralph went up there to do it, and when he found out what they really believed, he put it down in a book. He got the book from a guy named Clawson up there, and he marked that book up some kind of bad. See, first time... Gene apply, uh, uh, applied for membership at the Masonic Lodge. He was blackballed. One black ball will kill you. Everybody votes with a little white marble or a little black marble. And you all go up there and you drop a marble. Well, there was a black marble dropped in there, so he was rejected. Somehow, the word came out that I had done it. I didn't. I can tell you, I don't know who dropped the black ball, but I didn't. And so I was kind of on Gene Ralph's un, un, uh, yeah, <laughs> hit list, yeah, so to speak. And one day I got a phone call that said, Gene Ralph wants to see you. I said, Okay. I went down to the office, and I walked in. The secretary said, you know, I said, I need to see Jean. Well, what's it about? You know, she thought it was, he's an attorney, you know. And I said, just tell him Herschel's here. So he heard me. He said, come on back. I went back there, and that's when he gave me the book. But Jean had called me down there to apologize to me. He said, I accused you wrongly, and I found out that I was wrong, and I want to tell you that I was wrong, and that I'm sorry. That's what kind of man he was, really. You know, he had a lot of bad, you know, you know, his wife had him done with a in a black funeral home because she was mad at him. <laughs> but, uh, he called me in, and then he said, I want you to read this book. And he gave me this book. That's how I know it was all marked up. A whole bunch of pagan beliefs in there. And he had it written. We don't believe that. I don't believe this. I don't believe that. And Gene got out of the Masonic Lodge. I did, too. I got out the way I got in legally. I took. I, I didn't quit paying my dues and all that. I got out legally. Asked for a diamond. I wrote a letter and asked for a diamond. That's the dis dismissal to get out. But they had to read it in open lodge. And a lot of them didn't like what they read, what I what I wrote, because I told them I said it doesn't agree with Christianity. And I can no longer be affiliated with this, regardless of what you say about the Bible. I said, it, it doesn't fit. And so I got out. 
I am an ex-Mason. And they say that you can never be an ex-Mason, but I am. And Gene got out, and a lot of people said, ah, he got out because he couldn't run it. No, Gene got out because he didn't believe it. I don't have any idea whether Gene ever became a Christian or not. But I do know that he'd have a couple come to him about divorce, and he would counsel them to go to church. Why, you know, you can't explain stuff like that. Huh? That's all right. Only God knows. You can't explain stuff like that. So here's what Paul is saying here. It is a mystery revealed to them. Now, the seventh verse says this, but rather what we are setting forth is a wisdom of God once hidden and now revealed to us by God. That wisdom which God devised and decreed before the ages for our glorification. I speak to you a mystery. You see that in the Bible. It doesn't mean a mystery that you have to solve. A mystery is something that God did not reveal until a particular time. I've got down here some mysteries that we don't understand. We don't understand the mystery of God. We don't understand the mystery of the Trinity or Christ, his person or God incarnate. We don't understand that. We don't, it's a mystery. Sonship, virgin birth, mystery. Regeneration of the saints, mystery. Union with Christ, we say that we're in Christ. That's a mystery we don't truly understand. Resurrection of the body, we don't know what that's all about. It's a mystery. It will be revealed in time and the change of the living at his coming. The ones that, are, Paul says, we that are alive will be changed in an instant. See, all these are mysteries, but we can't set out and solve them. We can't hire a detective agency and go out here and solve them. They will be revealed to us by God when it's time for us to know. And that's what Paul is saying right here. This is what's going on, folks. Here in Corinth, you are being revealed because you are mature. It's being revealed to you. These other dummies out here can't understand it. No way. So what we have here is he says that You are being, as Christians, right now, you understand things. Why the crucifixion? You understand it. Why the virgin birth? You understand it. You not, might not comprehend how it was done, but you understand why. You understand original sin. The world out there doesn't understand these things. See, because of your spiritual maturity, 
you can you have had these mysteries revealed to you that you can understand. And so what do you do with it? Rejoice. Rejoice. It gives you a different perspective on the world. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. The world can't say that. Only the Christian can say that. And Paul is telling these Corinthians, look, you're in the middle of Greece. There's a whole bunch of folks out there that think they're smart, think they've got wisdom. But I'm going to tell you a different kind of wisdom. I'm going to tell you a wisdom that God reveals, and he hadn't revealed it before from the ages. But it says, before the ages. See, a lot of these folks out there were saying, well, our wisdom is from ancient that's like masonry claims that their their track goes back for ages. The Rosicrucians and the Illuminati and all of these other organizations, these other societies, secret societies, they claim to have a secret source in the past. But Paul says, what's revealed to you was in God's mind before he ever said the first word about let it be. That's how far back our wisdom goes. So, think about it. Verse 8, it says this, None of the rulers of this age or world perceived and recognized and understood this, for if they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Now this Lord of glory, uh, you'll find in Psalm 27, 7 through 9, uh, Psalm 27, 7 through 9 says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Have mercy and be gracious to me and answer me. Wait a minute. Am I at the right? No, I'm not at the right place. It's Psalm 24, 7 through 9. I'm on the wrong. Here it is. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and leave me lifted up. You age-abiding doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Yes, lift them up. You are age, your, you of age-abiding doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Think about that. Selah, that's what that means. Selah means think about that. So what you've got here 
is the Lord of glory. See, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They don't recognize who I am. Who is this Lord of glory? Jesus is this Lord of glory. And he said they don't know what they're doing. See, they were unwilling to see his works and believe on him. People today are still unwilling to see the path of righteousness. And if you're unwilling to see and believe, you die. Just quite simply, you die. You die forevermore. And verse 9 is where we'll finish up, and it says, But on the contrary, as the Scripture says, What eye has not seen and ear has not heard has not entered in the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. What God writes, he does. It says, Scripture says, what God writes, he does. Now and forevermore. This, all this is included in here. Pardon of sin, atonement, justification, peace and joy, redemption from wrath and death. What it basically says this, if you're enjoying your life as a Christian, because you've been pardoned from sin, because of his atonement, because you are now justified, because it gives you peace and joy, and redemption for wrath and death, that's what you're saved from. We say we're saved. Yes, we're saved. We're saved from what? God's wrath. What did Jesus bear on the cross? God's wrath. So, if you like all that now, if it's this good now, how much more in heaven later? That's what eye has not seen and ear has not heard nor entered into the hearts of man. That's an old Jewish idiom that, that he's using there. If you can't see it, and you can't hear it, and you can't even imagine it, it's going to be better than that. So, what God does, He does it now, but He does it forevermore. So that's where we end up. You like it now? You'll like it better later. You know, 
Terry Brown. Wouldn't come back here if he could. Go up there and offer, offer to bring him back. Don't think so, huh? Don't think so. No matter how much. Billy loved you. You wouldn't bring him back if you could. And he wouldn't come back if he could. Stop and think about that. Sure, we miss, we miss the ones, but the truth of the matter is, is once that eye has seen, and once that ear has heard, and once there's no more imagination, but it's real. Who would want to come back to Helena, Arkansas? <laughs> or, or anywhere. I spoke at the men's breakfast yesterday morning, and I gave them a question. We're supposed to be sons there with them. Ask them, what are you leaving? What kind of values are you leaving your son? And I said, if Jesus was to walk through that door right now and look at you and say, I don't know you. And being omniscient, I will never know you. What would it take to please you? Or what would you give in exchange? For your soul. That's what Jesus said. And that's the question I asked him. I said, I want you to take this home with you. I want you to get in a quiet place and ask if he told me right now that he didn't know me, though I claim to know him, that he didn't know me, what would my reaction be what would be the depths of despair and Paul says you folks that's mature you got it you don't have to worry about that but that's the key not does I know him but does he know me and Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his vicarious death on the cross. I know that he died because he looked like me, because he bore my sins. And that he paid a ransom for me, which makes me far more valuable than I ever consider myself to be. But if I was valuable enough for the Son of God to die for me, then you must have placed a high value on me. 
You created mankind in your own image. And may we try to live to reflect that image and to make sure that others see Jesus in us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.